Stage Pass. I am your host, Vince Edwards. You may know me from Sound Image Productions. I also have a couple closed roadie groups on Facebook, one called Death by Loadout and another one called The Backstage Pass. Tonight here with me, off to my right, is my good, good friend and co-host, Kyle Thomas. How are you, sir? Good, man. Another day, another dog biscuit. Yeah, baby, we just ran it right up to the to the last second, didn't we? We sure did. <laughs> we did the same thing last week. We, like, <laughs> we like sat down at 6.58. It's like, all right, rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, this feels like one of those, you know, right when you just get the doors open right at that last second. Uh-huh. Uh, everything just going right up to the wire, which I get a little bit of a kick out of that, frankly. I like that live kind of spontaneous. It's kind of like that yesterday, too, huh? Yeah, we went oh, from yeah. a... Oh, what? Oh, what, are you talking about the JCRC thing? Yeah. Tell the, tell the audience about the JCRC thing we did yesterday. Uh, so it's the Jewish Center of, and I always forget the RC. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, it's the Jewish Community Relations Committee. Community Relations Community. There we According go. To Michael. Killing it. See, he's way that's why he's the best of, of us. Why do we keep him off camera? <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah, we're just. We should be here, here dude. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, we need yeah. to talk about a little switching position. Did I ISO him? So it went from doing like more of a. Uh, set up like we do for the show here to mixing a, a my heavy memory rehearsal which was which is an interesting transition it was a long day what did we start at like 8 30 in the morning we did a 10 hour with uh, with that show which was a kind of a, a fundraising thing for that something they normally do you know out in the world mm. but we helped them do it here because of obvious reason and i thought it went really well and uh, the producer the um the lovely uh Susie did, I think, was very happy. Susie Drill, yeah. Susie Drill, who's uh, a dear friend and a wonderful woman. Oh, she was so nice. Oh, she, yeah, yeah. She could be a little bit of a pit viper. So she was killing it. She was on her best behavior tolerating. All right, I was going to say you, but, you know, you're such a sweetie oh, pie. Oh, she, she see, I got the thank you. you and appreciation emails. No, we, our crew knocked it out of the park. You guys killed it. And she was really happy. That's mm-hmm. all we really cared about. So We're always going for the happy customer at the end of the game. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Did you see that the great, well, let's say hi to some folks that are tuning in this evening. Yeah, it's yeah. the great John Del Rio. Hello, Johnny. We love you, baby. And a wonderful and one and only, he's one of a kind. Uh, it's our Charlie Siriki. He's the godfather of the show. Hammer. Yeah, he's a brother and a half. And of course, Scott Cheney. Thanks for tuning in, Scott. I hope you're doing well, my brother. Um, I got a book. Charlie Zeriki sent us Jim Yakubowski's book. Now, first of all, I want to thank Jim for last week. He's, he's such book, a man. delight and a treat to have on the show and just a, a hell of a human being. But this book, He's written me and Kyle have uh, thumbed through it so far, and we haven't read it quite yet. But but it's just such a treat. We're we're so happy to have this, and and we want to thank uh, Charlie Zariki for re- reaching out and helping us out with that. Yeah, thank it's you, so Charlie. sweet of him. He's he's literally one of the best in the game, and, and I just can't say enough about him. I'm kind of fawn all over him. I, just I love look, the Jackie checked in. And of course, it's the love of my life. She just finished up teaching a class of her own for her business. And oh, nice. She's just, my chick is unstoppable, man. She's like <laughs> just an amazing girl. Look at you so two, power couple. I'm I'm crazy in love with this woman. And she's like, you know, when when it's all going right, she's the center of my world. I'll tell you what. No, that's great, man. So show the book to the kids. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think Mike book. got a picture up on there for us, just so I, 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 he can't really zoom in too well. But well, this book, man, has been filled right off the bat. The first thing you read is like a Van Halen setup of their speaker array and everything. It's like really cool stuff right off the bat. So I can't wait to read the whole it's, thing. There's a little bit of gold in there. I got. Oh, I only made it to 12 pages in with the time that, that it was available to me, and it's a page turner. I, I was like, I didn't want to stop, but I had obligations that I had to, you know, run off to. But I'm coming back to that. I'm gonna, you know, like dissect that book. Oh, I'm sure we'll have some questions for Jim at yeah, some point. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we're going to drag him back on the show eventually. He was just such a treat, and I feel like we didn't uh, get to, you know, expand on his the whole of his career, and there's just so many things he gets up to, and it's just a joy. Well, when and you mix for that many people, how really how can you touch on everything in an hour? <laughs> I was talking to Winston Dama, who's here in the shop right now, and, you know, he's uh, 43 years in the business, and he's worked for, remember the last time we had him on, we had seven pages of yeah. bands. <laughs> that, was, that was awesome. <laughs> and so, like... You know, and so I was telling him, can you come back in June? Because his his resume, we barely scratched at the surface of it. And he's such a dear friend and such a sweet man and has so many extraordinary, you know, experiences. And, and it's just incredible. So it's uh, we're really lucky to be surrounded by some amazing people in our business. We sure are. And I want to, you know, get this out to the other folks out there, to, you know, young guys coming up and see that this is a business you can have a career in and, really make a life out of it. And, and Winston Dama, our guest tonight, is a great example of that. 
And uh, so we were, we're very, very lucky. I want to say a quick shout out to, uh, first of all, Ignacio, uh, Lighting God is uh, checking in. Hello, Ignacio. Good to see you this evening. Clint Winsley, that's uh, uh, Crew Music Asia. He's a dear brother. He's, uh, I hear he's going back to, to China to, to, to get back into the oh, swing nice. of things. And that should be really good for him. We Dude, want good that. Good for you. You're uh, getting it back in. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's been on down the farm too long. He needs to get back to work. And <laughs> they, they need him out there. And then Ian Peacock, a, a dear friend uh, from over at the across the pond is uh, reached out to me today so i wanted to say hi to ian peacock and of course a quick um uh oh i want to touch on something really quickly uh today somebody i got these two groups and uh, as of now they're close to twenty-seven thousand people in the groups and they're a 24-hour concern the people all around the world are involved in these groups and uh i can't look at them every fucking instant and minute of the day uh because that would be weird so I check in with him when I can, and I manage him. He and I, checks in when he takes a poop. That, let's well, that's be what real. Facebook should be called, the stuff you do while you're in the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. And, uh, and somebody put a page, uh, and this is like the second or third time somebody's done it, where they said, uh, Asian folks, nothing against them, but they tend to put in weird, non-related stuff on my page. And they sneak in by one of my other administrators, which I'm going to talk to him about it. And so then I have to take them out of the page because there's no simple way to oh, do it. Oh, that's no just, fun. Yeah, and so they'll put up this nonsense. And somebody wrote a post to me today saying, "Who's keeps letting who's letting all this crap on the page?" And so of course I wanted to reach out and rip their larynx out because you know that's kind of my style. But uh, <laughs> we can see from the desk. Yeah, you know <laughs> they wouldn't say that to my face if they were standing in front of me. I guarantee fucking it because they know that wouldn't go well. Um, but um, so. I do my best as I can, as time allows, every single day, probably to the tune of an hour or two, of uh, keeping that page tight, keeping it on message, and that's what I can do. So whoever's out there that that's not good enough, there's like 10 other roadie pages, fucking run along. Go Guys, check those out. that okay? was a really nice way for Vinny to say don't pee on the beehive, because uh, it is a beehive. <laughs> yeah, and, and, I'm, and we're doing our best, and we're providing a service to you guys because we believe what we do, we love what we do, but I won't be smacked around or put on blast because I can't get to something fast enough, so pretty much I'm telling you to go fuck yourself if you don't like it. Um, <laughs> and there's that. So with that said, uh, sorry for my surly tone, but that one, put me a little bit in the uh, stratosphere with yeah it. you didn't yeah. share that with us yeah well you know i sit on these things and try <laughs> to sort through them and hope that the temperature goes down before i get in front of a microphone but you know i can only do what i can do and i want to apologize to my girlfriend for cussing so much on tv she does not like it and she's not wrong um so i'll do better but let's so it's great to see you you You've as had well a busy week. thank you for all that you do for us hi paul o'dul uh, do it to him again god damn it what is it's like a and he's a friend i like this this is our friend it's pat o'dul He's the guy who got me this cool ass lighter. I love this lighter, Pat. Seriously, you're the best. So um, let's just get right to it. We got a big show. We've got a, a really a legend in the business. I, I can't say this enough. This guy is the history of rock and roll. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Let's do this thing. All right, tonight we are blessed. We are. We have a, a rare, rare treat for you kids. I, I can't tell you this enough. This is a gentleman who has been in this business for. He's really one of the best of us. He is in a, he's in a compendium of knowledge and and uh, and experience in this game. He's done every, He's worked for some of the biggest bands in industry. He's worked for Bill Graham. He's came up through the rock and roll from the late '60s to to this day. He'd be working right now if it wasn't for our ongoing weird situation. Um, he's uh, he was works in the rock and roll game. He works in the jazz game. He works in the touring uh, live touring shows game. It doesn't matter. He can do it. It's he's done it. He runs the Great American Music Hall here in the Bay Area. One of the probably the most enjoyable, fun places to gig at, and uh, you know go see good shows if you're a fan. Uh, he did sound. He's working, worked out the Altamont. Now, Altamont is an infamous situation that happened in, no, I guess, late 60s, early 70s. 69. 69, uh, where the Rolling Stones came in town and shit the bed and hired the Hells Angels. We're going to talk about that. This guy has seen and done. He's an amazing man. He's an associate professor for the California Jazz Conservatory in Berkeley. Can you please help us welcome the wonderful and amazing Lee Berkman? How you doing, Mr. Brinkman? Doing well. <laughs> so good to see you, my friend. It's really, really a treat to have you here in the audience in the, on the show today. How have you been during this COVID-19 thing? Well, aside from the boredom and the lack of income, I've been doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Those are uh, those are the, the, the tricky parts we've all been trying to overcome. Uh -huh. um, but you, you don't seem any worse for the wear. Uh, you know, 
I'm looking at it as my rehearsal for retirement. I'm not ready to retire, but at least I'm getting some rehearsal time. I have, a, I have this thing with uh, this this theory that retirement is not good for the male soul. Uh-uh. It, it's kind of a it kind of puts a dot on the. In the we need a way to drive ourselves forward and feel our sense of purpose, and I think you take that away from us, and it yeah. kind of takes the steam right out of the engine uh, pretty quick. As as long as the ears and the knees work, I'm going to be doing sound somewhere. Yeah. Exactly. It would be a, a, a tremendous loss to the industry to not have you. I mean, you're amazing at what you do, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that from you. That's really good news. And I think we're we're kind of on an up, upward tick towards getting back in the game, I think, here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to nope. get out in front of it too soon, but it feels like that's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, so that, let's hope that that's how it goes. Here at the show, we're interested in the origin story. You know, I mentioned you've been in the game for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did what what drove you to come to the game? How did you get into it? Well, I was the uh, I was an AV nerd in school. You know, I was the guy with the threading the Bell and Hell sixteen millimeter and the Wallensack reel to reels, and I was doing this when I was in the fourth grade. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> that was, and uh, by the time I was in high school, I was running the sound system in the auditorium, which sounds impressive, but you know. We're, we're talking a three-input bogan. You know? <laughs> it's a very different oh, today. It's a very yes. different kind of thing. Yeah. Side of stage mixing was my you know, good experience for later on. Sure. Uh, and uh, I was going to become a librarian, and somehow I got sidetracked. I was home for the summer, and a band I had done some work for when I was in high school said, hey, we're going to go out to Kansas and Nebraska. You want to get in the van? And I got in the van. Never and I never really got out of the van yeah. one way, yeah. at least not figuratively. Gotcha. That's a that's a great story. Yeah, we all kind of started. A lot of us from our era mm-hmm. started in a similar way, almost by accident. You know, there was a love for this for the right. gear and the sound, and we were trying to understand it in the early days. There wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't a lot of direction from outside the or the outside. There world. were no schools. No there schools. were no magazines. No, there sir. were no you know. No, no. You just, you just went out and did it and made right. major mistakes and hope nobody noticed. Yeah. Well, and there was a you know we talked about this. There was an ability to kind of hide mistakes a little easier back in the day too. That's not so much of a thing nowadays. Your stuff can be kind of on blast now. Whereas audiences right. were a little less. Hey, I can hear the vocals. I can see the band. <laughs> right. Right. And that was a happy audience for the most yeah. part. Yeah. You're not wrong. Uh, you worked at the, uh, to me, it's a fascinating, amazing the Avalon Ballroom, the history oh, yeah. of that place. Talk to us about the Avalon Ballroom days. Well, first I worked at the Family Dog in Denver. Oh, no Family Dog Productions opened a branch in Denver in 1967. And I did not work there at the beginning. I was working for another club, you know, okay. in Denver. And one day... I was still kind of doing the librarian thing. I hadn't completely committed to this. So I was working for an underground weekly newspaper. And part of the gig was I would go to the family dog every week and get the flyers. And they'd stuff them in the newspapers. Well, one day I show up at the family dog to get the flyers. And their publicist looks at me and says, uh, you do sound, don't you? I said, yes. But, uh, what are you doing this weekend? Well, it turns out that the guy who'd been the sound man for the family dog had left town on a buying trip. Let's put it that way. It was because it was illegal then, and he hadn't come back. No shit. So I got thrown in. Side of stage. You know, that venue is mixed side of stage. And um, trying to remember, my first show was either The Birds... Or Lothar and the Hand People. My goodness. Wow. <laughs> Pretty amazing yeah. first shows. Well, the band, the, the most popular band at this other place I was working was called the American Standard. I don't think very and, uh, They never recorded or were famous under that name, but you've heard of the guitar player. Which is? No, he was a 17 or 18-year-old runaway from Sioux City, Iowa named Tommy Bolin. Oh, no shit. Wow, that's impressive. Yep. Yeah. And by the time he was 19, he had basically absorbed the entire Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, he's a monster. Ethos. He was a monster. Yeah. A serious badass. I mentioned in the intro, it's just a fascinating subject. Let's let's be honest. 
the your time. So let's talk about Altamont for a second. <laughs> we, we don't really have a choice. I mean, no. it's, you know, not a lot of people uh, can make a claim that they worked the Altamont show on the sound side of things. Can you talk to us about how that unfolded? Well, I'm not sure everybody here understands what Altamont is. Well, at the end of their tour, the Rolling Stones wanted to make a movie. They wanted to do a big free concert because they weren't at Woodstock. And they wanted to do this, first off, for the ego boost. And secondly, apparently, for, because of taxes or whatever, they were broke. Well, yeah, Britain will tax every dime yeah. you got. So, yeah. And they hadn't yet figured out, moved to France for tax purposes, exactly. or Switzerland, whatever it was. I think they went to France, yeah. Yeah, and so what happened is um, the people with the Grateful Dead said, uh, we, can, we can arrange this, and it'll be a surprise. You'll be the special surprise guest on a Grateful Dead Jefferson airplane show in Golden Gate Park. Well... The city wasn't having it. No. So the next venue offer, uh, Sears Point, which is the sports car, stock car track up right. in Sonoma County. And they had porta potties, they had security, they had infrastructure. And so they wanted to, you know, this, remember, it's the 60s. We're all, we all just want to pitch in and do a beautiful thing. And Sears Point, they actually started building the stage. Started getting everything together, you know, a proper festival stage with a moat and a wall. And, gotcha. And Sears Point then found out that the Rolling Stones were making a movie. Uh-oh. And the owners of Sears Point at that time was Filmways Corporation. <laughs> so this sudden, uh, this original, okay, we'll let you use the, you know, the, the property if you pay for security and insurance. But we won't charge you rent or, you know. Yeah. That went away. So immediately, lawyers, agents are on the phone, and they're tearing down the stage at Sears Point. We don't know where we're going. 36 hours before downbeat, they cut the deal with Altamont Speedway, which was a little-used stock car racing track on Altamont Pass, straight up 580 here. That's right. Between here and Tracy. Still there. Oh, yeah. And uh, the tour of Le Mans. Le Mans. That's right. Um, and uh, so at this point, all, or the other thing is the Stones were not touring with a big enough sound system to do an outdoor gig. So some people, some gear from McEwen Sound, some gear from uh, uh, Swanson Sound, I think, I'm not sure, but definitely McEwen, Corcoran, Bob Cohen Sound, Lumiere Productions, who had the sound equipment in the Avalon Ballroom, later the Family Dog on the Great Highway, we all met up at Altamont Pass late in the afternoon. We worked all night, kludging together a sound system. This is mostly Altec voice of the theater cabinets, big Altec multi-cell horns, but coming from three or four different sources. Not everybody's cabinets were wired the same polarity. (laughs) So as the sun's coming up, and you can see this very briefly in the movie, hanging on the outside of a scaffold, on one scaffold is me, and on the other scaffold is a guy named Dave Schultz, and we're holding the receiver of a phase checker, and somebody's standing on the deck going, click, and if the green light comes on, the cone's moving forward, if the red light goes on, the cone's moving backwards, and if the cone's moving backwards, these are Altec Voice of the Theaters, you take the back off the cabinet and you reverse the wire to the connector. Wow. Because also in those days, there's no, no NL4s in those days. No, no AP4s. No, Some companies had Hubbles. Some companies were using XLRs for speaker connectors. Some people were still using screw terminals. That's right. And then hanging on the inside of the scaffolding on each side was this system that the Grateful Dead were experimenting with. It was a large curved array, came in three sections. The top curve had, I believe, eight D-130s in it. Wow. The bottom curve had eight D-130s in it. And then right in the middle was the JBL's golden slant plate lens. And this was their attempt to do a line array, <laughs> circa 1969. Yeah, and then, the head of the curve. And then 
the Grateful Dead at that time were still playing places the size of the Family Dog on the Great Highway occasionally. And Bear had built this system that was consisted of eight Sun double 15 bottoms oh, and some slant plate lenses powered by Macintosh 3500 boat anchors and Ampex mixers and the first third octave equalizer I ever saw. It was an Altec Acousta voice set. Each filter was its own module oh, with a rotary pot. Oh, yeah, it was. Wow. But they used those speakers at Altamont for stage monitors. Incredible. So if you look at the film, you're seeing the sun bottom get kicked around when all the yeah. chaos is going on on right. stage. Right. That was the monitor. So you were there when uh, <clears throat> when the band was playing, mm -hmm. and uh, an altercation jumped off in the in the front. Uh, there were multiple altercations. Oh, I'm sure. Well, during the day. Well, let's give a little preface. So the so the Stones in a pinch hired the, the Hells Angels, or at least gave them yeah. permission to run security for this show. Because the Hells Angels had done security for the memorial concert for Brian Jones they'd done in Hyde Park. Yeah. What they didn't realize is that the English Hells Angels were choir boys compared to the San Francisco and Oakland chapters. Sure, yeah. It's a very different animal. Very different animal. And we didn't have time to build a proper stage. No. The stage was no higher than this road case. Yeah. At the bottom of a bowl. Yeah. No moat, no, no bicycle rack no, no, fencing. No, 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 no. Nothing. It was a line of men, more or less. Yeah. Well, they didn't. They came in later, but at one point, um, when the Jefferson airplane's on stage, Marty Ballin sees Hell's Angel in some altercation with someone in the audience. Sure. And Marty got macho and jumped off the stage and tried to break up the fight and got punched in the yeah, chest. Yeah, clever. And <laughs> the always diplomatic other guitarist in the band said, hey, some Hells Angel just punched my lead singer, and I don't think that's very cool. Which, of course, made the Hells Angels very pleased. So, and it just went, it got worse. And, of course, it gets cold out on that pass at yes, it night. Yes, And the Stones did not want to go on until the sun was completely down. So there was like a two and a half, three. The Grateful Dead never played. Wow. The Grateful Dead just said, you know, bad mojo, we're, we're not going to play. Yeah. So, you know, Santana played, the Jefferson Airplane played, the Flying Burrito Brothers played, and then darkness, three hours, and they come out, and the chaos started almost in the middle of the first tune. Yeah, it got, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if you haven't seen it, you should look out, uh, check this out. It's an extraordinary uh, moment in rock and roll where, in effect, basically uh, uh, an African-American gentleman and all dressed up in a, in a Green suit, suit. Uh, made, some, made a move. There was some altercation with some women, and he stepped into the fray. I believe he was associated with these women, and he went to draw a gun. And it's very clear in the film. You can see this for yourself. And he went in his waistband to pull a gun out, uh -huh. and they reacted. Um, well, they in effect they, they took him they, out. They they killed him because they were. It was it was a it's a real moment of true um, self defense because yeah. he was going to shoot him, and they weren't going to have that. And to their credit, in some ways, and it was a very controversial moment. But uh -huh. if somebody was pulling a gun out on you, you would either get shot or do something before that happens, and that's what they did. And so he ended up being stabbed to death. And it's a, right. it's a critical moment. And it was a, for many people that put on shows and study this, this is a, the exact what not to do when you bring some big bands together in an impromptu free concert uh, in that environment of that time. It was just exactly what not to do. And you were having to be there. And it's just an yeah. incredible thing. Well, I was on the stage left speaker scaffold, third layer level. Wow. Wow, that's yeah. so crazy. Let's move on from that, but yeah. it's just fascinating. But, but yeah, just strapping together, you know, multiple sound systems. And here's the amazing thing before we leave. Sure. I, I have found in the years since, talking to people who were there, the further you were from the stage, the better a time you had. <laughs> there were people a half mile up the hill who had just a marvelous time. <laughs> well, it's good to hear that it wasn't bad for everybody. Well, you know who had the worst time? 
after the show. Well, you know, th this is the history of uh, old school rock and roll yeah. gigs. Is the yeah. first eight, it's not like it is now. The first eight rows usually got mowed down and, and the worst of the sound. And, mm -hmm. you know, and this was a process. We were still figuring out how to throw how live to put shows. put the sound word. Yeah. And plus the nature of the geography of that place, mm -hmm. if you understand it at all, you know, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's right near my bro's house. So mm -hmm. I see it all the time when I visit. And it's it's just an unlikely spot to throw a successful it, event. It's not a pleasant part of no. real piece of real estate. No. But after the gig, it was cold, and a lot of people yeah. couldn't get out because their cars were stuck in the mud, or oh, they couldn't I believe that. Yeah. And it was cold, and the all the speakers and the follow spots were all lifted with a crane. Crane driver driver freaked out and split with the keys to the crane. Oh man! So uh, he came back the next day, but the night after the concert, all of the uh, road cases for Chipmunks Super Troopers were smashed and burned as firewood. Yeah, see, that's just not surprising. Now here's a scene you can see the picture here oh, yeah. of the aftermath of the yep. show. And it really shows in really detail when you bring, what, what was the guesstimated amount of people? 300,000. Like, you're putting 300,000 people wow. into a natural bowl space. I mean, it's just really, it's exactly what not to do when you're putting mm -hmm. on, when you're throwing a show. And a lot of lessons were learned, luckily, from that. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and we, you know, uh, refined the process of putting mm -hmm. on live shows for large audiences as a result. And the same with uh, Woodstock, which is right in that same generation. Woodstock got lucky. Yeah, they really did. They really did. And and the crowd was, I don't know, I think there was something about the crowd that was a little more, so, you know, the, the way they embraced the mud. And, yeah, and by the time and, Altamont you know, happened, yeah. well, Altamont was just a one-nighter, too. Yes. So people didn't have time to bond. Mm -mm. And to be frank, the kind of drugs people were taking yes. was changing. That's right. People were, there was right. a, lot more, a lot more meth, a lot more, you know, yeah. Downs, yeah. So it was no. a different vibe. Yeah, it was. It, well, you know, we we're we we're transferring, or uh, it was kind of this weird going from the the sixties, and it was kind of closing out, mm -hmm. and the seventies were being joined quickly. Yeah. And like you said, there was a kind of a harder edge to that. And yeah. I think the things that people were putting in their bodies, their sensibilities were changing. Vietnam was uh, on mm -hmm. full blast. People were angry, and uh, and then you bring you know uh, some folks in that aren't going to be uh, messed with. Uh, yeah, it was just a kind of a powder keg. It was, it was. I think it was. It, it, it had no choice but to blow up. In some ways, we were lucky. Not more people got hurt. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Really, yeah, that's a very good way to put it. All right, moving on. That's uh, thank yeah. you for sharing your experience with that because it's fascinating to me, and you know, just a little bit before my time. So, but yeah. but you know, I've studied it in detail, and it's it's an absolutely fascinating thing. Um, I know you worked at the, another really, you know, a place that's still up to this day that has put on some of the best shows in the rock and roll game as the Fillmore. You, you spent some time at the well, Fillmore. No, I did not work at the Fillmore except with bands. I worked for Bill Graham. Oh, oh. I worked for Bill Graham had an empire for a while when he was at the Fillmore West. Yes, he did. They had the Millard Booking Agency, okay. Fillmore Records, and Bill Graham Management. And... With shifting personnel, because in California anyway, you can't be someone's agent and manager. Yeah. Both. Yeah. So that was but So there were different staffs. Sure. So I was actually hired to work for one of the bands he managed. I eventually wound up working for several of the bands he managed at the time. But sure. the first one was a folk rock band called Lamb. Lamb, yeah. And, uh, you know, the veteran, you know, the... Graduates of that band went on to play with Van Morrison, Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, you know, they all did pretty well. Barbara, the lead singer, had a pretty tragic life, though. Uh, that's sad. Yeah. What was it like working with the great Bill Graham? I, liked, I liked Bill, and Bill, Bill liked a, me, he was a, he was which was very lucky. Yeah. Uh, well, Lamb... Because we were managed by Bill Graham, we got thrown on to some fairly inappropriate shows. Um, for example, I don't know whose idea it was, but we opened at the Fabulous Forum in Inglewood for Humble Pie. Wow. And we're like Lamb this, and Humble Pie? Yeah. Wow, that's an interesting combination. And we get there and, you know, rented back line. We're just flying down, renting a station wagon. We go there, you know, with the guitars. And Steve Mer you know, uh, we're not supposed to dump on bands. The singer of the band, <laughs> the, the front man for Humble Pie doesn't show up for sound check. 
and they're not going to let us have the stage until he does. So at 20 minutes before doors, they give me the stage. Really? I set up the stage, and I really haven't even started a sound check, and it's doors. And Bill comes up and he says, Lee, what's going on? What's what, yeah, something wrong? I said, well, we didn't get a sound check. Can I have 10 minutes? And he looks at me and says, you got 10 minutes, not one second more. Yeah. And, and I did. Yep. Well, we've, you, it's not a, it's, it's a thing. Every so often, you got to sound check yeah. right into doors. I yeah. mean, that's and, happened. And, I, you know, I asked for 10 minutes. I got 10 minutes. Yeah, see. See, Good. the thing with Bill and all of his stage managers, if you were the support, they didn't care what time you started. But you were coming off on time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was kind of a cardinal rule, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Then the other lamb, not as inappropriate musically, we opened for Neil Young at the Oakland Coliseum. I could see that working a little that better. That worked a lot better. Yeah, yeah. But Linda Ronstadt was supposed to open the show, and she got laryngitis. Uh. So I get a phone call at home at 10 a.m., and it unmistakable voice is Bill Graham. Yeah. It's like, Lee, can you have Lamb's equipment to the Oakland Coliseum? How soon? But, well, Bill, it's at the rehearsal studio in Marin. I could call the drummer and we, yeah. So the drummer and I go to the rehearsal studio in Marin with his Buick station wagon. Because all of Lamb's backline will fit in a Buick station <laughs> wagon. Snugly into the station. Yeah, this, snugly, but people, it all fits. Yeah, but remember, remind people that station wagons back in the day were well, old. Friggin' massive. Well, this was a Buick station wagon. It was probably two, you know, 200 inches long, 225 inches long. Yeah, serious. Serious. Serious yeah. car. A lot yeah. of car. Yeah. You put a lot of drums, you oh, know, yeah. combo amps. I think uh, our bass amp was like, you know, an acoustic 160. You know, it's like everything fit. The only thing they had to provide was the grand piano, and Jack Nietzsche was playing with Neil, so there was a grand piano. Perfect. So we pull in about 2 p.m. into the loading dock of the Oakland Coliseum. And this is before cell phones or much of anything. We pull in semi, 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 red Buick station wagon down to the dock. <laughs> and the guys at the dock just don't believe we're the opening band. <laughs> yeah. they, you know, they think we're trying to scam our way into right, this right, show. Right. And uh, so That's funny. without a cell phone, so I leave David in the dock and I walk around to the box office, hoping that I can find someone from BGP yeah. that knows me. See, did you call the doc? Yeah, tell them we're actually supposed to be there doing what we're doing. Yeah, we killed. I mean, we really did. We got a great response. However, there are some people, because it was kind of a folk rock band with a girl lead singer, right. there's some people thought she was Linda Ronstadt. Well, you know, this is early. You're speaking about early in Linda Ronstadt's career because to me, uh, I was never a huge fan in real time of her, but mm -hmm. I understood that she was an incredible talent. Her yeah. voice, I mean, Linda Ronstadt was an extraordinary mm -hmm. talent in the 70s. She yeah. really owned that decade. Her, Carly Simon, yeah. uh, they were just extraordinary. So I could see how they could kind of mix it. Yeah, up. Uh, yeah. Uh, Barbara was definitely Texas. And this Linda is pre-visual, too. You know? Yeah, well, we, that's you know, it. A lot of people didn't have you visuals didn't, of the bands. Yeah, you, you, you saw pictures of Linda Ronstadt and it's the Oakland Coast and there's no iMag. No way. Yeah. So, you know, there's a mm -hmm. girl with shortish hair singing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about a common problem in our business. Me and you kind of yammered about this a little bit yesterday, but uh, uh, it's convincing their parents that this is a real career. How did you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> me and my, I relate to you with my brother and me and my brother's story on this with yeah. my papa, and who's still with us to this day and love him dearly. But, uh, you know, it took a little convincing that this was an actual real career. How did yeah. you do it with your papa? My dad was a small independent pharmacist. He ran, as he put it, a succession of failing small drugstores. And after he'd retired, I was doing a gig in Denver. So I flew in a day early so I could spend some time with my dad. And rented a car, and I took him to the venue for load-in. And he hung all the way through load-out. And he's there, and he's eating, eating with the crew, and he's like, sees, you know, stage go up, speakers go up, lights focused, sound check, dinner, show, everything goes down. And then about, you know, 1 a.m., I'm slapping the truck on the back and waving to yeah, the yeah. driver. We get in the car, and about halfway home, turns to me and says, you guys are like bull riders. Because one of the things my dad used to do is he was bull the riders? bull riders. Yeah, yeah. Because he was, my dad was an EMT 
at the local rodeos. An emergency medical technician. Right. Yes, sir. Because he was also the MT for the volunteer fire department. We're gotcha. talking semi-rural Colorado at sure, that time. Sure. And my dad always maintained that a bull rider is a cowboy that's too lazy to do a regular job and too dumb to realize that what they're doing is harder work. <laughs> And, and he, he said that that's what he thought we were. And that's and that's the point where my dad realized that what I did was a real job. I love it. <laughs> that's great, that's great, amazing. That's a great line. I love that. That's so perfect. I, I, I had a very similar thing with my 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 father, and it took him a minute to understand. Yeah, I'm not sure if you got, you're, you've figured out the smarter way through this, but it is <laughs> it is a legit gig, and you do work hard. Um, talk to us about. Um, I know you you did some guest mixing with Van Morrison, the great Van Morrison. <laughs> His, uh, you know, we've dealt with Van on many issues, and depending on when you caught him in his career, he could be a very different person. Because uh, he could be a very different, different person decades. in the space of a week. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. What, what was your experience like with Van? Well, let's see. Well, he played at the Great American Music Hall, where I was the house guy for a long time. No shit, house guy, huh? Well, yeah, I was the house guy at the Great American Music Hall for a long time. But Van, when he was living in Marin would periodically look at the newspaper, you know, the San Francisco Chronicle pink section, and he'd see an open Wednesday or Thursday the following week. He would call the owner and say, hello, Tom, it's Van. I feel like doing a gig. And they'd <laughs> say, okay, Van, same deal as before. Yeah. And so they'd call the Chronicle immediately and get his name in the... Because it only took one Sunday newspaper ad. Yeah. Van Morrison could sell out two shows a night. Absolutely. Two nights in a row at the club. But here's the best part. After they'd agreed on the deal and the dates, before he'd hang up, Van would say, Tom, can you call my band? <laughs> Get them on board. <laughs> well, because at that time, Van had his band, his Marin County-based band on retainer. Oh, okay. And, you know, if he called them on, you know, I think it was two weeks' notice, they had to drop whatever else they were doing and do the gig. Yeah. But he kept him on retainer, so it was a worthwhile thing for them. Well, you know, Van was not a stupid man when it comes to the business side of show oh, no. business. He understood that. But he also well, worked off of a whim, you know. And oh. if he got a he got a hair, he oh. wanted to do If he got an itch, he wanted to scratch it. And I know this about him. At the same time, you know, he could be challenging. And yeah. um, One but, time he decided he was paying the band too much money, so he cut it down to a four-piece. <laughs> he did a couple of gigs and... Realize, well, that didn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now I know where that money's going. Yeah. Exactly. Paulie Montero, a dear friend of our show, he was here, was he here last night? Sure was. He was sitting right in this position, right here, was a drum riser, and he was playing drums for his band, My Heavy Memory. He's, but you probably know him from SIR, Studio mm -hmm. Instrument Rental. He asked me to ask you, what was your favorite show you've done at the Great American Music Hall? The... My favorite show was not a rock show. It was jazz violinist Stefan Grappelli. Mm. Who what was, what he, made that special for you? What made that special is Stefan Grappelli recorded with the gypsy jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt oh, in geez. the 20s and 30s. It was their, They were the co-leaders of the band. Just, yeah, Django Reinhardt. And Django had passed away. Yeah. And Stefan was living in London, making a living playing, I kid you not, cocktail piano. In the London Hilton. Oh, shit. And this crazy English guitarist who loved Django's music named Diz Disley. What a name. Talked Stefan into coming out back out and playing that music again. So in 1975 or 76, the Great American Music Hall booked him. And there were people in that audience that had been listening to those records since... The 40s. Yeah, three decades. And they decades. never thought they'd actually see him live. And at that time, he's like a 60-something-year-old you know, 60 Frenchman, and he's just shredding. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, he's just, you know, it's like juggler. He's throwing melodies up in the air and catching them. Wow. And, but the, uh, just the emotion in the audience and how just amazing he was. Yeah, it sounds very special. But, yeah, and then that would be my favorite. Now, some of my most memorables were the ones weren't very pleasant. We're not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> we've all we've all had, we've all had very those. pleasant shows. That is uh, that is part yeah, of the game. The first the first and only time Journey played there was in the early days of the club. Sure, and is they this brought their Dave Perry. Huh? This pre Steve Perry? Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is when Ainsley Dunbar was still in the band, and sure. Ross Valerie was doing most of the vocals. Right, Neil had just come out of Santana, I guess. Right, and they had. 
the smaller version of Santana's Bandone PA. Right? Yeah. No, Bandone PA. Yeah. It was designed by Charlie Button. And this was the Great American Music Hall before they put in the system that Bernie Broderick helped us design. The whole building, the whole building was wired 100 amps single phase. <laughs> Yeah, the, the the electrical wire. The ele Can the, you say fire trap? The uh. electrical wiring was put in in 1934. Wow. And we're trying to run sound and lights both on that. Not and easy. So Journey comes in and the breakers just start blowing. So Charlie Button spent the entire night in the breaker room just turning the PA back on every time it blowed the breakers. That's awesome. That's so funny. But, uh, but. You know, Alan Price played a gig at the Music Hall in the early days. Okay. And that's when he was uh, working off the, that movie, Oh, Lucky Man. Right. That was a great gig. That must have been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, he's truly a legend. Some of Van's best gigs ever were at the Music Hall. You know, yeah. I, I do know that, actually. The, the history of his, his performances there is Because he wanted to legendary. be there. Yeah, that's a big thing for him. Yep. Yeah, he really does need to to feel the show, or he's going to turn in a he's going to oh. just go for the paycheck, and it's you're going to feel it. Well, here's the Lamb connection. Uh, he hired Lamb's piano player and guitar player to be in his band. Oh no shit! But uh, that must have been something. It was. So what we wound up doing is Lamb opened a Northwest tour for him, and one night in Seattle. In the middle of Into the Mystic, while the sax solo is going on, Van yeah. exits stage left. The sax player keeps playing. No Van, no Van. Wow. Finally, the tour manager comes up. Van had just decided he wasn't feeling it, and he, he just went out. out. He went out the he went out the fire door, hailed a cab, and went back to the hotel. <laughs> next next day, he, so he did a good word. show musically, but he did the whole show in Salem, Oregon, sitting in a straight back chair. Wearing, with a guitar, wearing, channeling John Lee Hooker, you know, wow. basically. Oh, I would have loved to see that. And then the night after that, in Vancouver, he was doing Jackie Wilson, you know. Uh, really? The, the kicks, the, you know, I mean, it was like he was a, like, you've seen The Last Waltz. Oh, yeah. The way he comes out in The Last Waltz. Yeah, yeah. He did the whole night like that. My God. And that's three consecutive nights. No shit. Yeah. God, the stories you have, my brother. This, this, see, the, the early history of rock and roll is absolutely fascinating yeah. to me because this is the foundational period where, you know, whatever it is that we do today and when we get it right, mm -hmm. it kind of came through these channels in, this, in these ways. Well, we figured out a whole lot of things that didn't work. Yeah, sure. And we figured out how to make things go together quickly, come apart quickly. Right. Because, you know, you couldn't just be at the end of the night unscrewing the speaker terminals. You had to. Yeah, that was uh, very labor intensive. You mentioned a minute ago, interestingly enough, it just popped up in the cards next, uh, <laughs> you're, uh, that you um, have an association with our, our dear, dear friend, Bernie Broderick, who's about 12 feet away. You over there, Bernie? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I hear him. <laughs> Rebuilding he's, he's right over there building yeah. something right now. Well, um, when the Great American Music Hall finally got an adequate amount of power and did the first serious upgrade to their sound system in 14 years, Yeah. Uh, Bernie was working for L Acoustics, and Bernie and Miguel from Dolby came in because the Great American Music Hall has a balcony around three sides. That's right. And a really tall fascia on the back wall facing the stage. So with just a line array, you couldn't get the sound into those balconies yeah. without Very bouncing it off the fascia. You know, we didn't have five-degree vertical yeah. boxes to That's play right. with. So Bernie put together a system with uh, speakers in the balcony on the side walls for the side balconies and then delays back there. And Bernie came in and we spent like, I think it was two, maybe three days timing, timing it, it, tweaking yeah. it. Sure. So he did good for you. He did great. That system still sounds good. Yeah, actually, it really does. That's really true. And yeah, that's just what the guy does. He's a speaker legend and you know, a designer mm -hmm. and a god. And, we're really lucky to be associated with him. And it's not surprising that you guys have this history to me. <laughs> um, talk about us, um, to us about uh, mixing with David Crosby. Uh, see, it sounds to me like you've had, you've had some... 
<laughs> it was a short. Again, it was a short, sweet, uh, short, sweet yeah. tenure. But Dave, Dave, another guy, extraordinarily talented guy. But depending where he, you caught him in his career, this was. He could I, be I would say he was very low. It was a very low part in his life and his career. Yes, sir. And he was, you know, forgetting the words to his own songs. And he was. Uh, he was messing with the periodic table pretty heavily yes, right there. And I, I, well put. Yeah. I mean, he would. We would do these. You know, he has all these. Priceless acoustic guitars, mm -hmm. and each one of them has a pickup yeah. and an internal mic. So there's two jacks external on the guitar because he's not going to drill holes in those guitars. Right. And we do these long sound checks on each guitar, and then he'd come out for the show and he'd plug the wrong jack into the wrong plug. So the mic output was a, and it's like, oh man. And of course, this was before, now you could just <laughs> do, right. a hot, do a yeah, hot patch. Exactly. On the, just but flip it on the board. Couldn't do it then. No, so And he'd be like ripping me a new one. The guitar tech would walk out on stage and stand behind him and go, asshole. <laughs> I think the word you just said was asshole. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we, when you, you have a career of over 50 years, of mm -hmm. course, there's going to be peaks and valleys in that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we, we for guys like us that have been around for a minute, we get to see some of that, you know, but through oh, the different yeah. times and periods of people's you, lives. You know, another another. Musical gig that was a lot of fun. It was a benefit. Uh, it was Elvis Costello and Nick Glow. Yes. Took me right there. So, so, Nick, so I'm, I'm going to stop you just for a second. Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe, to me, are two of the baddest asses. I friggin' love them. Nick is a sweetheart. Jesus Christ. Such a gem. And talent, right? I mean, oh, he's yeah. just endless talent. I always thought of them as. Music for musicians. Mm -hmm. I didn't, the general public, in some levels, got it, but it wasn't widely accepted. Was, I think they were just too, you know, they, they, they were just too in, intense. I don't know the right word for it, but extraordinarily talented. This year's model, my, uh, those albums, uh, uh, fantastic. Well, you know, the Marin band Clover, after two relatively unsuccessful albums, the yeah. record company sent them to London to do their third record. Yeah. And they were living like in a cold water flat and not getting any money. Sure. And they couldn't legally work because they didn't have, you know, work permits. And Nick put them together to play on Elvis's demo. Yeah. So they were on Elvis's first album. Amazing. But so this was a benefit for Austin DeLone's son. Austin's great piano player from Texas, mm -hmm. lives in Marin. And his son has a genetic disorder called Prader-Willi syndrome. Wow. Which basically the part of your brain that tells you you've eaten enough, you're not hungry anymore, doesn't work. Wow. So if you have this, you will literally keep eating. Nuts. 24, yeah. So not so fairly high maintenance. So Austin's friends, you know, have always come together. Well, this year, Nick and Elvis were both coming out to play Hardly Strictly. So the week before... They did this show at the musical, and it was basically Elvis sings Nick, Nick sings Elvis. Oh, that's they did very each cool. They did each other's tunes. That's very cool. Wow, that must have been a very special thing. And you're speaking about the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival, which is a massive festival. Oh, yeah. It's a free concert we held in Golden Gate Park three, four three days, days a year, and it's just yeah. everybody plays. I mean, Everybody just, plays there, and I've never worked it because... What? How's that? The reason for that is when Swim's... The Slim's production office ran Hardly Strictly Bluegrass for the first 20 years, or whatever it is. And myself and Ted Hatsushi had to make sure that while everyone else is out playing in the park, you yeah. know, sound techs, that Ted and I keep the music hall and Slim staffed. That makes sense. I was thinking about bringing Ted on the show. What do you think? Is that a good play? I think so, yeah. Ted's a sweetheart. I'd like yeah. very much to have him here. I'm you started out, out as a punk rocker? Huh? He started out doing sound for punk bands. See, well, see, he can tell you about the Me Fab and him Mab. are going to have a lot to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I started as yeah. well. He, he, survived, he survived the Fab Mab and then hooked up with a you know, Motown cover band, and that's where I met him. Wow. He came into uh, the Great American Music Hall with the Zazu Pitts Memorial Orchestra. I, I remember Zazu were very, Pitts very They were well. very hot for a while. They could sell out three nights in a Zazu row at the Pitts Music Hall. put on a hell of a show. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And Ted was their front of house guy. And I'll tell you how much I liked Ted. I got along with Ted right away. I think by the third Zazu gig, I gave him his own keys to the mic locker. Wow. I mean, wow, that's trust right there. Well, and we're still like that. Oh, that's like, very sweet. 
we've had, he's had my back for a long time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to Ted and see if he'll come in. At the, uh, we're booked yeah. up till the uh, end of April, but I would love to have yeah. him in here. He's just a, well, he's again. Living, living out in, in the family place in Pleasanton, so he's not too far away. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, we have our little Facebook relationship, but I'd love to have him bring him in here and dig around in his history mm -hmm. there, especially the Fab Mab. You know, the oh, Mabuhay yeah. Gardens is, I saw so many extraordinary acts in a really seminal part of music mm -hmm. history. And I think you could speak to that, and it's uh, it's a little it's a little area that I don't think it's enough of attention because uh, you know it was a little bit quick. It, it, well, yeah, and it was combat audio. Oh boy, oh it boy, was like, it was yeah, combat. Yeah, some of those shows really. I mean, it was talk about off the chain. I mean, shit would get sideways real quick. Well, David Bromberg used to play the Great American Music Hall a lot, and the music hall he had a big band, so we didn't have enough monitors to do David band. So we would usually, you know, rent monitors. And our two regular sources were all booked up that day, so we rented a monitor rig from FM Productions. Sure. Okay. So we've got David Bromberg, and those same monitors had been the night before at Winterland with the Sex Pistols. <laughs> Wasn't that the Sex Pistols' last show? It was indeed. Yes. And when we cracked open those cases... Oh, my God. Spit, snot... You're yeah. hoping that's what that was. Well, well, whatever it was, it <laughs> yeah, was rank. Could have been anything. <laughs> the odor from those road cases was rank. That show is a classic. I mean, that show kind of is a legendary show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Sid was in a, he was in a full downhill slide. Oh, yeah. He was on a fast track to the end of his days. Yep. And uh, there wasn't too much. And, of course, Johnny Rotten, Johnny Lydon at the time was mm -hmm. just a friggin' hell on wheels. He was just a mm -hmm. terror. Yep. And they really, that, that it makes sense that that was their last show. They were yeah. they were kind of imploding at what that. What did they do? Yeah. And they were everything was it was it was kind of like the Howard Stern of music at the time. Mm -hmm. They were just trying to freak people out. They were and the people the audience was more than willing to go along for the ride. Mm -hmm. And you know they were spitting and chucking fluids of all sorts. And it was yeah, it was, it's an absolutely legendary thing that ended up being the last Sex Pistols mm -hmm. show. So that's interesting. You had the you had the well, monitor use, rig the those, very next day. Use those wedges the next day, and <laughs> oh, it was <laughs> odiferous. That sounds rough. That sounds really rough. Uh, talk to the, tell us about your time with the legendary. I mean, this guy is truly a legend. The great Rye Cooter. My relationship with Rye, I never worked directly for Rye, but from the Avalon Ballroom to mm -hmm. the Family Dog to Fillmore West, I oh, did. You made the rounds, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and I did, with the exception of the last one, the last time you played the Green Rock Musical, I worked every Rykuder San Francisco show for 20 years. Of course, bear in mind, sometimes that's one this year, two years off. Right. And <clears throat> the best one was the last live record he did there. He did, he's done two live records at the musical. This one, he had a full-on banda. And they wouldn't all fit on stage, and nobody wanted to stand in front of the trumpets. Oh, my God, no. So we put the trumpets in the balcony above stage right. <laughs> Very clever. And the trombone and alto horn and stuff were on, in the balcony above, yes, stage left. And Flocka Menes and Rye and everybody on stage. Uh, else was on stage. And when the banda started playing, you know, nobody knew where the sound was coming from. <laughs> Ghosts in the machine. Yeah, it's like... Uh, but uh, it's just, I think we, you know, we kind of, I wouldn't say we hit it off. We just knocked heads the first time in about 1968. And from then on, he sees me. He knows he's going to be taken care of. Yeah, it's like and, an old friend. Yeah. 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 And I don't ask him too much. He hates people who want to talk to him. Well, I think he struggles with dumb questions. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, 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 does he, will not not, suffer he doesn't fools suffer fools. He, just, uh, he will get in your shit quick. Well, the, one, not that one, but the uh, one that he played with the Little River Band, was a Little Village Band, minus John Hyatt. It was uh, Nick Lowe and uh, Jim Keltner. Man, what a line. Yeah, and, was, and his regular guitar tech couldn't make it. So I had to find him a guitar attack, and I knew I had to find someone that wasn't going to ask him a whole lot of questions about the guitars, <laughs> but who really could... Yeah, could do the job. Could do the job, but not... quietly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, that all worked out. Yeah, that all worked out. Well, you know, the other thing about being in the business long enough is you can... It's like casting a movie when you hire a crew. Absolutely. You know, you know... 
Well, getting the chemistry right is critically yeah. important. You're, yeah. you're making cookies. You put too much salt in that chocolate chip cookie, mm-hmm. it's going to be an awful cookie. So, yep. no, there's no two ways about that. That's, I, we do that here. We, I, that's something that's really critical to making things work well is uh, putting the right people with the right p- other people for the right job. Yeah. And so the artist comes into that understanding of certain personality types and, um, you know, the energy level you bring to a thing is critically important. And I think you're... I think you're a student of that and understand oh, yeah. that very well. Well, you know, at, um, at the time of the shutdown, with both Swims and the Great American Musical operating, I had, like, a call list of, like, 14 or 15 sound techs. And, you know, based on availability, you know. Sure. Okay, these guys are good for, you know, I, I shouldn't put this person on a hip-hop show, but this person would love it, you know. Yeah, so right. I had that luxury of, you know. It's a very nice luxury to be to be afforded. Yeah, yeah no two ways about it. Last time I took my gal over to uh, see The Fix, right mm-hmm. before the hall closed, right before mm-hmm. Slim's closed. Yeah. And uh, it was just, you know, one of those mortgage tours. Mm-hmm. You know, they were out getting that, that money, and uh, Pike Barber was behind the mm-hmm. board, and so we hung out with Pike. But, you know, uh, it's it was it's sad to see that Slim's went away because... It was, a play, it was a guaranteed place to see a good show. And, you know, you could always get to see your bands on the way up and bands mm-hmm. on the way down. And it was a kind of a sweet that's spot the for mid, that. That's the mid, mid-sized club reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Slim's never let you down that way. You could pretty much. And that's and another thing. I miss the pink section. I really do. I oh. used to love the pink section. Yeah, I, I mean, it's the still Sunday there, paper. but it used to be You'd literally. tear it apart to get to the pink section and then thumb through that and see what's going if on you could, the month. You know, if you could get a... Feature story on your your baby band, or new jazz act, or you yeah. know, in, you know, a feature in the pink section that would by itself would be worth half a house. Oh, easy. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. no, that was a kind of a bible in its own right. Yeah. I mean, there was a there was a real and it was a way to really bring people together from you know pretty much about a hundred miles outside mm-hmm. the city in a big large circle. And you could really do. Well, some of course, there were fewer credible venues out in the burbs then That's too. Right. That's right. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was um, really strange when that went away because I thought that was a big uh, part of the whole Sunday Chronicle oh. experience. Oh, the whole Sunday Chronicle experience was in- incredible. People who grew up after newspapers don't understand. No, they can't understand. Something about uh, folding that page back and that that ink on your fingers. I would you know, take. Yeah, you know, when I was working the Family Dog at the Great Highway, I didn't own a car, so I would be ta- taking the thirty-eight Geary bus. From Ocean Beach yeah. down to where the pad was, sure. and I'd get off and change buses at Geary and Van Ness, and there was a Foster's, I don't know if, yeah, it's a Foster's Diner. Yeah, yeah. Open all night, so I'd buy, you know, after Sunday night, You're I'd buy back I, so Saturday night, I'd buy my Sunday Chronicle, and get my Foster's English muffin. <laughs> Sounds kind of perfect, brother. Oh yeah, and just sit there and decompress because. Some some Saturday nights, that 38 Geary buses, it made its way down sure. the length of Geary sure, Boulevard. Sure. It was like being in a Fellini movie. And I oh, just, no doubt about it, right? I mean, really true. We used to find, kind of experience that at Zim's, mm-hmm. our market. You know, we'd yeah. kick it in Zim's, kind of corner booth it, and be just after some crazy shenanigans at the On Broadway or at, mm-hmm. the, or at the Stone, you know, yeah. one of those. It could be the Mab Fabs during the punk rock days, and we'd sit there and have chicken soup and kind of recount the night's events and yeah. all these, you know, it's kind of a freak show. In going Denver, on it was the white and... spot on Colfax. Sure. In uh, L.A., it was the Sambos on Santa Monica. Uh, good old Sambos. Yeah. I, I like... feel bad even saying that out loud, but this was a place. It was well, kind of like it was the... open. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and well, just the name. It was such a poorly oh, no. named oh, place. No. Uh, was, but uh, now you could never have a place called Sambos. But There's only but... one left. I didn't even know that there was. Yeah, really. it's the original in Santa Barbara. No shit. Well, yeah. You know, I, I remember the Bob's Big Boy back in the day, and yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> their Brofort dressing. There was, yeah, this this oh. is uh, time oh, the machine Bob's stuff. Big Boy in Denver wouldn't let hippies in. Yeah, you know, the, Bob's had that kind of in L.A. too. <laughs> yeah. was a, kind of a thing, and they didn't know what to do with us as punk rockers. We'd roll up and. We were kind of the anti hippie, but and, mm-hmm. and we had the you know the, the close haircuts. And yeah. but they they were smart enough to stop us at the door anytime after midnight. You try to roll in after midnight, and they, the manager would come and try to hustle you out. But usually there was way more of us than them, yeah. so we, it was kind of a chase around the building situation. It was a <laughs> lot of fun though. Um, talk to us real quick um, about uh, your time without with uh, Beach Blanket Babylon. Oh, well, Beach Blanket Babylon. Explain for to the folks those what that who is. don't know. It, yeah, it's this. Wacky satire cabaret show that started in the back room of a restaurant in North Beach and then moved to 
an Italian, yeah, Italian American social hall called Club Fugazi. Yeah, and it ran there for forty something years, and it was like outrageous big hats, tap dancing Christmas trees. Uh, but it's like a, it's a review and topical satire. You know, it's like when In Sync was hot, three of the Male cast members would come out in a prop sync and would say in sync and sing a number. But the theme is Snow White is looking for her prince and she goes all around the world and that's how they tie the things together. And um, the show is very popular in San Francisco. And then they put together a not quite a touring show. They always called it a travel show because they didn't really tour you know, as in get on the bus and truck and do it, we would go to, like, Stockton and do shows. Or we'd go to Visalia. <laughs> or we, you know. And, I can only, I'm trying to imagine that show in Stockton. And a lot of corporate shows. Oh, well, see, I like, could see that. Oh, the corporate shows are great because. Yeah, but, like, a place like Bakersfield, Fresno, oh, yeah. you'd, I, you could really upset an audience with that show. Oh, yeah. The, well, Visalia, we had to, uh, you know. Okay, kids, PG tonight. <laughs> It's going to get a little blue in here. Yeah, it, but Kenny Maslow, the director, uh, when we do corporate shows, he would write a special song. He would pump the client for names to drop and oh, what the company perfect. did. And he would, uh, would always be a custom song. Oh, that's very clever. And we would turn a convention center or a hotel ballroom into a theater with, you know, drops curtains, the whole shtick in an afternoon. Wow. Sounds like a lot of work. Uh, yeah. But a lot of fun, though, right? Oh, yeah. We had we opened the Performing Arts Center out there in San Ramon, which is also the high school auditorium because that's the way they do it in the Yeah, birds. yeah, they share it. And we were the very first thing in there. No kidding. And Phil Brown, our rigger, yeah, he comes down from the fly, and he comes to Larry, who's the production manager, and me, and says, Larry, we, look at me. Look at me. What, Phil? No, look at me. There's no dust on anything. Because <laughs> normally when he'd come down from the catwalk, yeah. it'd be like uh, yeah, you're fur covered, ball. Yeah, covered in <laughs> you know, dust this thick. Yeah. yeah, that's very common. And yeah. to go into a new facility like that, it must have been a little startling. <laughs> yeah. but And the other thing is, the now that the show's closed, I can say this. Um, the director, you know, we would do a, a full dress run-through afternoon of the show every time because it was new material and different stage and we had to make sure there was enough overhead clearance for the finale hat Oh, uh-huh. because the finale of the show the hat lady comes out and the hat is like 12 feet tall yeah and it's the san francisco skyline yeah it's something to see and then as they go into the last course of san francisco open your golden gate Stage manager pushes the button for a garage door opener, and it goes up even higher. The Transamerica Pyramid goes up even it higher. Kind of telescopes it out. Yeah, telescopes yeah. out, yeah. and a little biplane flies around That's so it. That's good. Yeah, a lot of fun. And so the stage has to be hard and level. Otherwise, the hat lady will, because no human being could support that no, hat. No, 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 no. There's a space frame underneath it on casters. So our... But the director, uh, anyone who's done sound for rock bands knows this. He had no, he had no high end left in his hearing. Oh wow! And so while he's out in the audience during the sound check, I've got the 4K spike on everything, <laughs> because if you can't understand the words, you're not going to laugh at the jokes. That's right. And he had to be able to understand the jokes, and well, you know, he's got that kind of hearing. Yeah. And I'd have to tell the producer or the event planner. Yeah, just trust me. What, what showtime? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we've all had to mix for the tour manager, the band manager, sometimes, and and then you adjust hey, accordingly. And he's, he's for a the wonderful show. guy. He's really oh, sure, sure, talented, but, but he just. You know, we've been around enough to know there's a few guys in the game right now that have some hearing deficit, and sometimes mm-hmm. I I can't mention a name right now, but there's a one guy that comes right to my mind right now. Mm-hmm. He's a famous, I mean, mm-hmm. world famous mm-hmm. band manager that will come and. You know, get in your ribs and mm-hmm. tell you need to pump it up here and there. And, mm-hmm. and with, how do you tell him 
And he's like this tall. <laughs> and you tell him, dude, it's you. It's not, it's not us. We all can hear that. It's you. But he's one of the biggest rock managers in the game. So you give him what he wants, and then you alter it when he's away. Yeah, yeah, he just, yeah, this hit exactly. Listen, I could talk to you all night. I really could. I, I didn't even get through half of my questions. <laughs> I, uh, I would like to uh, uh, maybe uh, schedule something in the future. We could come back together okay. and do a second uh, part two with this. Sure. Because, yeah. you, you know, you just, you, your schedule. length and breadth of experience is so. Yeah, hey, you know, if the uh, Internet chat isn't uh, throwing, you know, as Hoyt Axton used to say, anything hard or sharp at us. <laughs> no. No, they should be. They Not should too be. bad, actually. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Pat O'Doul time did it, said I like riding the 38 and playing spot the hawker. No, that's the, he means hooker. Yeah. yeah. I, know. I know what he <laughs> that's means. Pat, that's <laughs> saying he used to ride the 38 bus and they'd yeah. play spot the hooker. Well, Pat well no, the 38 wasn't too bad that way. It's once I got further into the tenderloin. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. tenderloin can be. The 38, it's like. What do you say? Yeah, you pretty much hit. once you get up to Eddie, that's when it started getting questionable. Oh, yeah. But coming out, you know, all the way in from the avenues, you'd, uh, you know, it's whatever bar, you know, there's like a bluegrass bar on one corner. There was a, well, the, first there was a tiki bar. Sure. And then there was a bluegrass bar. And then there was, uh, uh, you know, the two, the, the Bermuda Triangle of Irish bars. Yeah. And so you'd get a different sure. class of drunk, you know, every 12 blocks. <laughs> I do remember the Polynesian phase that happened during the 70s. That was that was a thing. My uncle actually owned a place called the Tiki Bar mm -hmm. down in San Diego. It was a thing. Listen, it was an absolute honor, a treat to have you here, Excellent. my friend. Thank you for coming in this evening. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, the car knows the way. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll do it again? All right. All right. Thank you, my friend. Thank Cheers. you, Lee. So Lee Brinkman, just a, a, a true legend in our game, brothers and sisters. Thank you for being here. What a great interview. Seriously. Um, Listen, we're running long tonight. Thanks for being patient with us. We, we, we There's sometimes, you know, like I've said before, when the conversation's good, I'm staying in. It's just that simple. And so thanks for hanging out with us. Um, next week, uh, we've got the great Jeffrey Raz, Raz Mutant, coming in. He's a straight-up badass. Now, I know we've been a really audio-heavy. Obviously, we're audio guys. But this show is the... You know, the mission of the show is to highlight the different segments through bringing our friends in and people that we, we know and respect to come on the show and show and highlight different disciplines of our business, staging, lighting, costume, whatever it could be, right down to catering. We've had these guests. We're going to have some of these folks coming up in the near future. That's a little shout-out to you, John Del Rio. <laughs> it's up my ass about mixing it up a little more. But I, what can I say? I, I got a lot of audio friends. So we're going to have uh, the Raz in next week. This is uh, Jeffrey Raz Mutant. He's a dear, dear friend. Uh, decades, decades in the business. Steve Miller Band, Evanescence. I could just go on and on. He's an extraordinarily accomplished guy. We're going to talk to him next week, 7 p.m., right here on Thursday. We appreciate you coming out. I want to thank everybody uh, for the helps make this show possible. I want to send you all love. Please keep care of yourselves and take care of each other. Be kind. This is my biggest and best advice. Be kind. Call your friends. You never know. They might need you. Until next Thursday, have a great night. Thank you for coming.